What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And yeah, before I introduce today's guest, another quick update for those of you who haven't been around or you're just not paying attention, kind of some important stuff going on. All right. So anyways, real quick, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. Uh, uh, some of, you know, I, uh, start a new job or started a new job, depending on when you're listening to this and yeah, podcast schedule is going to be, uh, changing a little bit, possibly, maybe not. Uh, but yeah, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter so you don't miss any updates. All right. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, other thing, do me a favor. If you've been around, if you like the podcast, if you enjoy it, huge, huge, huge favor. All right. It's huge on my end, but very small on your end. Take two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. That stuff helps out a lot. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. I'm not asking you for a positive review. I'm just asking you for a review. All right. Stuff like that helps out with the algorithm. But I also check that if there's anything that you like, dislike, you have any uh, suggestions, anything like that, feel free to leave it in there. I read that stuff. And yeah, I'm always trying to grow, but also let people out there know who come across the podcast. Like, hey, what's good? What's bad about the podcast? Is it the right place for them? You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah. Anyways. Today's guest is Amy Herman. All right. So check it out. Her book is called Fix. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to enjoy this book. And this might get me in a lot of trouble. Uh, but hold on, listen to this whole thing. All right. But I'm not like a huge art fan, right? Like going to like uh, a museum or an art gallery. I just, I just don't get it. Like, it's one of those things that I respect it tremendously. Like if you could take like paint, right. Or you could take a pen, a pencil, whatever it is, and you could put that on like canvas or paper or whatever it is. That is phenomenal. That like, that is like some dope stuff right there. I respect it, but I'm not the type of person where I can go and just like stare at that stuff forever, which is weird because I love like seeing just like, I don't know, certain types of art and everything, but like the classics, like Van Gogh and all that kind of stuff, not really my jam. So anyways, with this book, uh, Amy Herman, she teaches like about how we can make better decisions and problem solve and like go through this process uh by looking at art learning from artists and all these other things right so i didn't think i was going to enjoy this book but but like i said listen to the whole thing amy has helped me respect and understand art a lot more with her book fix and you know uh one of the one of the rules i live by something that helps me and my life uh make everything better is that i always try to take something away from every single experience, no matter what book I read, whether it's good or bad or whatever. Uh, if it's a TV show, if it's an article I read, if it's a 12 step meeting I go to, whatever it is, I'm like, what did I get from this? And Amy with her book taught me like there are things that I could take away from art and artists, which I love. And this is like what she does. She goes around and teaches and trains people. But as many of you know, like I'm huge, huge, huge on decision-making and thinking errors and, you know, human irrationality and all that. And her book fixed is just phenomenal. So I'm super glad um, I was finally able to link up with her and have this conversation. We were trying to schedule it for a while. So yeah, make sure you head down the description, follow Amy, grab a copy of her new book fixed. We discuss like uh, intellectual humility, like how to, you know, uh, like, have difficult questions that might get you in trouble, but why they're important. Like so many things. Her work's amazing. Check it out. I love this conversation. And yeah, again, don't forget, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, leave a rating and review over on Apple podcast. But yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Amy Herman about her brand new book fixed. All right. Hello, Amy. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I am well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So we're here to talk about your newest book, Thanks, which I was fortunate enough to get a review copy of. And I read it months ago, never heard of your work. And I absolutely loved it because I love these types of books. And this was so different. But before we dive into the topics, for those who have yet to meet you, 
Can you kind of yes. give a little introduction to yourself, what kind of work you do and all that? Absolutely. Uh, I like to say that I am a recovering lawyer and an art historian. Uh, I left private practice and I went into the art world. I left private practice and I started work here in New York City at the Frick Collection. And basically what I do in my program in the art of perception is I run around the world and I teach people across the professional spectrum from medicine to law to law enforcement, intelligence, shock and trauma nurses. I teach people how to look at works of art to help with their communication, perception, and observation skills. It's not an art course. It's rethinking how we ask questions and I use art as the data to do it. It's fun, it's fast moving, and you don't have to know anything about art to participate in the class. And it's been a real honor and privilege for me to travel around and meet so many people and see how the power of art can be channeled into helping them do their jobs. Yeah, and you know, you know what's amazing about the book? It's like that that came through perfectly, right? So like I'm I'm a creative guy. If I'm not creating something, whether it's writing the podcast, doing something, I lose it. But I'm not like an art guy. I don't go to like galleries. You know, my girlfriend, she uh she's an artist. I love looking at her stuff. But anyways, so I was like, uh oh, what's this book gonna be? And and it was so interesting how you like intertwined it to I'm like, this is interesting stuff. So with the book fixed what what kind of inspired it and you know what made you want to write this book about the intersection of problem solving and looking at art in a specific way and all that well i had a very specific uh moment where it came to me but i just have to tell you one thing someone this morning i was describing to somebody what i do and i said <laughs> i basically made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich out of legal analysis and visual analysis and i put it together um, I, I like to think the practical aspects of legal analysis and visual analysis to make that, I call it the professional peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> well, I had written my first book in 2016, and that was called Visual Intelligence. And that, again, talked about the work that I do. And my publisher came to me and she said, why are all these people still coming to you? You know, cops and NATO officials and nurses. She's like, what is the common thread? Because I'm having trouble grasping the thread. Why is everybody coming to you to look at art? And I said, let me get back to you. And it took me 24 hours to come up with the answer. And the answer was everybody has a problem. Everybody has a problem that they're having trouble solving. And this is, mind you, before the pandemic, think of all the problems we're facing now. And I came back to her and I said, you know what? Everybody has a problem and their solutions aren't working because yesterday's solutions are not going to solve tomorrow's problem. And they're like, well, let's go to that art lady. She's, she's giving us a new way to think about how we see. Maybe she can guide us in a way to help solve problems. And that's where the idea for fixed came from. I thought, well, everybody's having trouble solving problems. So let's channel that power of art again and give people a really tangible template to rethink the problems they're having from, you know, the minor, minor annoyance of the guy down the hall who just annoys the heck out of you to how do you solve your problems, kids at school that you can't wrap your head around. Mm -hmm. And that's where the inspiration for the book came from thinking about what are all my clients looking for? Yeah. So, you know, uh, th this interview is a great change of pace. Uh, <laughs> I've been diving into books on just self-deception, denial, kind of like intellectual hubris, right? And I've been interviewing people about their books on that. And I've been reading a bunch of books on it. And, you know, your world is different because you're, you're, you're working with people who want help, who like realize like, hey, there are problems I don't know how to solve. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that I can look through your lens for just this this time we have on the podcast like do you do you notice this though like from what i've seen especially uh you know with all of the covid talk and vaccines there's debates among scientists there's people like getting the platform there's all sorts of stuff there's people who are you know against vaccines there's people who are for vaccines but against mandates there's so many things going on but when i look around and i see all these arguments it feels like everybody is just so sure of themselves, right? Like I am like a college dropout, former drug addict, right? Like I am just this guy and, and I had, and, but I get it because I used to be very like, I know everything. And now I read so much because I realized I don't know anything. So, so like, do you see this as an issue? Are people like getting like a light bulb moment and saying, hey, Amy, Maybe I don't know everything. Can you help me out? Like, what, what's yeah. your kind of overall view of the landscape of the world right now? What you're articulating is spot on. We are in a very angry place. Everybody's very angry. Everybody's polarized. I'm right. You're wrong. And the reason I use art, the reason I think one of the reasons art is so effective is A, everybody sees something and B, nobody sees the same thing. Mm. And I have two people 
standing in front of a work of art and I say, you know, it's, it's lighthearted and I'll say, okay, you describe for me what you see, Joe. And then I say, Barbara, you describe for me what you see as objectively as possible. You know, no threatening questions. Joe does his description, Barbara does hers. They couldn't be more different looking at the same information. So I say to them, Joe and Barbara, if this is how you're looking at a painting, imagine how you're looking at the issue of the day on the job. And so in a very non-threatening way, I say to people that nobody sees anything the same way. And we all need to take a deep breath. Because when you say, well, I'm right and you're wrong, the sh that shuts the conversation down. Nobody goes mm -hmm. anywhere. And so art, for some reason, gives people, I hate to use the F word, but a really fun way to think about our differences. We can talk about, as one nurse said to me recently in a, in a town really hard hit by COVID, he came up to me afterwards and he said, you know what you showed me? You showed me that objectivity and empathy don't have to be mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. The important thing that you can say to someone, you know what? I don't agree with you. But I see where you're coming from. Where you're coming from is valid in your eyes. And I'm going to acknowledge that even if I don't agree with you. And that's, I think, a big step in the right direction to thinking about how we solve problems. Because no, you're absolutely right. Nobody knows everything. Nobody knows everything. And anybody that pretends they do, forget it. I, and, and so the idea of objectivity and empathy not being mutually exclusive, art gives us the perfect opportunity to do that because no work of art is 100% objective. Some people hate it. Some people like it. I don't really care about that. It's what do you see? Yeah. And, you know, you, you just brought up something that I've been thinking about a lot lately where you, you, you said, like, nobody knows everything, right? And for me, that is just red flag number one. If I come across anybody who is just absolutely sure of themselves, I'm like, all right, I got my eye on you because I don't know how much I could, you know, trust your opinions because anybody that's sure. But here's, I, I would love your thoughts on this because an interview I was actually doing yesterday where we were talking about self-deception, we're in this weird space, right? And it gives us like kind of paradox that I think about a lot. So, uh, you know, we want to promote like intellectual humility. We want to promote people saying, Hey, maybe I don't know the answer to this, or, you know, we want, we want that and the world would be better place if we did that, but it feels like we're not as humans, we're not designed for that. So for example, if we're just using the example of, uh, COVID, uh, COVID again, um, Imagine like, you know, I, I empathize with like the CDC and Dr. Fauci and everything like that for some of the decisions they made, even though I didn't like them, but I try to do perspective taking as much as possible, but they come out and they act as, you know, pretty certain they do say, Hey, maybe there's some things we don't know yet, but they try to be as certain as possible. And then I try to imagine a world where they're just like, Hey, you know, like imagine like the, the 2020, the pandemic hits and they're like, Hey. We're not really sure what's going on. We're not really sure if vaccines will come out. We're not really sure if they'll work. We're not really sure how lethal this is. And, and that's what the public figures were trying to imagine that kind of uncertainty. And then the, the, the people who can come in and say, this is what it is. This is what works. This is effective. And, you know, Donald Trump kind of did that. Right. And again, we want intellectual humility, but as humans, we want certainty. We want to look to leaders. We want for certain. So I guess the, the, the long winded question that I'm trying to get down to is like, how do we foster a society where we respect uncertainty? How do we not be afraid of that uncertainty? How do we allow our leaders to make mistakes, change opinions and be uncertain? Because that's a lot of what you talk about in the book, but it doesn't seem like we're, we're wired for that. Absolutely. It's a really, really good question because they almost seem mutually exclusive. And the example I'm going to give you is even more current than COVID because I, I agree yeah. with you completely that science is objective, but science also changes. We know so much more about science than we did 100 years ago. And so the fact that the position of science and the CDC and the vaccines is constantly shifting, I don't have a problem with that, but some people do. And what everybody wants is leadership. And so leadership and a changing landscape, they bun heads. Mm -hmm. The example I'm going to give you to try to help us wrap our heads around this. Uh, what happened in Dallas in the synagogue where that man came mm. and took the hostages. And I was so proud, as I always am, to read that my law enforcement colleagues came in, they did their jobs and they did their jobs well. But what most people don't realize is you had local law enforcement in Texas. You had state law enforcement in Texas. You had the FBI mm. and my favorites, the hostage negotiation team from the FBI. And the reason I'm going to use them as the example is because 
well, not only do I admire what they do, they have really dangerous jobs, but no two hostage situations are ever exactly the same. You know, different settings, different people, different hostages, different objectives, different weapons. And when that hostage negotiation team comes in, not only do they have to acclimate to what's already happening on the ground, they have to form a strategy based on what they observe. It's not just what other people told them, it's what they observe. And the thing that I read about the hostage negotiation team today is that they are constantly in training. You never finish training for a hostage negotiation team. Okay, I got this. I am a hostage negotiator. I'm done. I'm going yeah. in. Constantly training because things are constantly changing. Available weapons, cybersecurity, breaches, everything is changing. And we have to take a little bit of that hubris and that recognition that we can't know everything all the time but we can keep growing and being innovative. And that's why I wrote this book to say, you know what, let's give people a template. One of the things I had in mind for this book was for it to be timeless. I don't want it to be outdated, in mm. a, not because of sales, but because I want people to be able to depend on the methodology of let's revisit looking at works of art. Let's revisit this template because we have a new problem that's different than the problem three weeks ago. And for that hostage negotiation team, yeah, they know what they have to do, but when they get there on the scene, it's 100% new. You know, what do you know? What don't we know? If I had more an opportunity to get more information, what do I need to know? These are all the questions that I want to teach people how to ask them. So yes, we're always looking for leadership, but you can have leadership and uncertainty. We, what mm -hmm. it comes to is effective communication of what we know and effective communication of what we don't know and also effective communication of what might change from the get-go. Yeah, it's it's interesting too. Like when I think about it, you know, think about you know the high stakes situations of like you know hostage negotiators and stuff like that. Uh, I think you know for me personally, what's helped me out a ton is just looking at like uh, like percentages, right? Like, hey, there's like a eighty percent chance this is gonna work, but leaving that open, even though you know there's a bunch of research that we don't even like really perceive percentages properly. It's like, okay, so you're saying there's a twenty percent chance, you know. Uh, so yeah, but you know, uh, that, I, I feel like that's, that's the best way for me when I'm communicating and problem solving with other people, but let's, let's dive into it. Cause you break the book down into three kind of steps for problem solving. Can you kind of go over what these are, what they kind of look like and all of that? The inspiration was, I told you from the beginning and you told me also, I'm not an artist. In fact, I, I think of myself as sort of ferociously uncreative, but I love other people's art and I love thinking about other people's art. So I was thinking about what does the artist do when facing a commission, an idea, and inspiration? I broke the book into three sections, prep, draft, and exhibit. Mm. And if you're not an artist, you can still, you can prep, figure out what you need, what you think you need to solve the problem. Who do you need to call in? Who's going to be your team? Then you draft. You think about all the possible scenarios the way an artist makes preparatory sketches or does models in clay and wax before the bronze, you draft and you draft and you draft, and finally you exhibit, you put it out there. And sometimes you have to exhibit more than once. Even the artist in the book that I follow, Jericho, he exhibited the painting in Paris. People didn't like it as much as he thought, so he moved it to London. And when he moved it to London, he changed the height where it hung on the wall, and that changed everything because people were looking at it from a different distance. So within prep and draft and exhibit, I have bite-sized pieces, managing contradictions, setting deadlines, rethinking your mistakes, you know, all these things. I believe that if bite any, if we break any intractable problem into smaller bite-sized pieces, it's not so daunting anymore. And when people have to set deadlines, everyone thinks, oh God, a deadline, I can't face it. But if you break that de deadline into small accomplishments and you celebrate each of these accomplishments, look what I did today. I mean, do you ever have a day where you finish the day and you say, what did I do today? What? <laughs> yeah. But sometimes for me, leaving the apartment during COVID and going to the grocery store and going to the post office, I walked a mile. I came home and I walked a mile. Break it down. Break it down. It's good for your psyche and it gets you to the next step and the next milestone. And ultimately what the artist wants is to finish the work of art. I mean, and, and I'll tell you, Leonardo da Vinci carried the Mona Lisa around with him. He was constantly revising, constantly revising, never considered it finished. Well, then he died. <laughs> he died before it was considered finished. Everybody else thinks it's finished. You know, sometimes we set really, really high standards for ourselves. And I hate to, to give a sound bite, but I'm going to do it because I it. It. don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Yeah. Don't let perfection 
get in the way of doing something the best you can. Sometimes good is just good enough. Parenting, you know what? No parent is perfect mm-hmm. ever. And if anybody tells you there are, I'm in there. I don't. Yeah, listen. red flag. There you go. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, who do you think you are? So don't let the don't let perfection be the enemy of good when you're trying to solve problems. And I just found that using the artist process for me, a non-artist, was was very helpful. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much packed into what you were just saying. And like when you're talking about breaking things down into smaller bites, uh, you know, just my personal experience, uh, you know, getting sober. I've been sober since 2012. After congratulations, multiple re- thank you. That's awesome. That's a big and- milestone. I, I, I struggle with what a lot of people struggle with is like when you, when, you know, you know, you need to get sober. It's like getting sober forever. Right. And I'm like, what? I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. Right. And you're like telling me that place I'm, to ever, be sober. Yeah, sure. I'm never going to drink, you know, maybe like I won't touch the drugs, but I'm ever going to drink. But in 2012, when I got sober and I started healing, they're like, it's not forever. It's just one day at a time. Right. And I'm like, oh, Oh, okay. I'm like, oh, you break it down into a day. Small accomplishments. Yeah. Break it down. Look what I did today. I didn't drink today. I didn't drink today. Mm-hmm. You drink today, I can get through tomorrow not drinking. And if you have a setback, well, you know what? I had a setback, but I know that I can do it. So I'm going to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and some, some days it was like breaking it down into an hour or whatever it is. But within what those smaller times, you develop strategies for those smaller sections. And then it's kind of like, for me, at least, it's like habit building, right? And that's, but I've taken those lessons that I learned in 2012 when I got sober and I've used them across my life in, in work and parenting and, you know, what, whatever it is. And that's awesome. It, Your own template for doing that. Yeah. Like, uh, what, so do you, do you see, do you see people who, you know, like, I guess what are, what are some of the tips you can give? Because, uh, you know, I'm somebody who, uh, uh, struggled severely with anxiety. It's much more manageable now, but it, it all seems so overwhelming. And you get into this kind of um, this this cycle, right? Where you start feeding your own anxiety. You think about how overwhelming it is. It gets more anxious. Then you procrastinate and you're not getting anything done. So you get more anxious and it just kind of eats, And it builds. It's a self-fulfilling itself. prophecy. I do have an example for you and it's very personal, but I'm very, very open about it. I'm a cancer survivor. Mm. 14, I was diagnosed with a very, very- Did you say 14? 2014. Oh, 2014. I thought you said 14 years old. I'm like, what? Oh, no, no, no. I was 48 years old. And uh, my response to when the doctor told me is, you're mistaken because I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with me. And it turned my world upside down. Um, Mm. I had immediate problems that I had to face. And to be perfectly vain and candid, I was going to lose all my hair. And it was a non-negotiable. And, you know, your hair, it's everything to you. And if you notice hair grows back, just saying. But I just had to say that in 2014, I get this diagnosis. I was going to have 16 rounds of chemotherapy and five surgeries. Talk about anxiety provoking. said, I need to wrap my head around this because I can't live for the next year and a half in a constant state of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So to break the problem down into digestible pieces. And you know what that came down to? One chemo treatment at a time. I had chemo every Friday. And the way I looked at it was every single chemo session, instead of thinking about it as, oh my God, I'm going to have chemo. I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be exhausted. Every chemo session was one more closer to the end. Mm. Almost started to anticipate them and say, you know what? I've had one. It wasn't so bad. I'll have another. And then I'm two down and I have 14 to go. And every week became these little milestones. And then I, I had a 12-year-old son. I had to do it for him too. And when we started talking about when my hair, when we shaved my head and I said to him, you know what? When you lose your hair, that means your medicine is working. That means it's killing your hair and it's working. And it became these tiny little bite-sized accomplishments to get me to the end of chemotherapy, to get me to the end of surgery and to get me to recovery. And it worked. And I really believe that my mindset, and of course I had small setbacks. Like I'd wake up in the morning and think this sucks. I feel yeah. old. I feel terrible. I'm cold. I'm tired. But then I said, you know what, Amy, get your shit together and get out there. Get mm-hmm. there because it's one day closer to the end. And you know what? I told my doctor and I told myself, dying's not an option. Yeah. I had a 12 year old son. I had too much of my life to lead. And I swear that breaking that big problem into small bite-sized pieces enabled me psychologically 
to get through the medical hell. And guess what? As I always say, here I am. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting how much I can relate. My, my son was only three when I got sober, but yeah, I, you know, I switched my motivation, you know, because sometimes it'd be like, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for me. But then on days when I didn't want to do anything, it's like, okay, now I'm doing it for him. Do you it know? for him. That's, <laughs> you right. Know? That's right. And you know what? Whatever it takes. Somebody said to me once while I was in treatment, uh, we were in the, I was in the grocery store and of course I was online and somebody started talking to me and they said, you know, what do you do? And they meant professionally. And I turned around and I said, oh, I do whatever it takes. And she's like, what's that? Mm -hmm. I was in the mindset of, you know, one small victory at a time. And it also brings in something from the book. Uh, I have one of my subchapters is called Repair Mistakes with Gold. Mm -hmm. And process, the Japanese uh, process of kintsugi. And what uh, artists who practice kintsugi is they make pottery. They make cups and vases and plates. And it's inevitable that some of them come out broken or cracked or asymmetrical. And instead of throwing that pottery away, what the artisans do is they fill the cracks in gold. And what happens is each of those objects becomes more precious and valuable than had it been perfect. So people seek out kintsugi pottery because it's really unique and rare. And what I love about kintsugi is not only is it beautiful, it honors the struggle. It says, you know what? You messed up. You made a mistake. You cracked the pottery, but you filled it in and you made it better. And not only does it highlight the mistakes that you made, everybody else can see the mistakes you made. So let's honor the struggle and bring those mistakes to the fore. Uh, because mm. you before, anybody that tells me they do things perfectly or they don't make mistakes, goodbye. Like that, yeah. that's who we are. Yeah, you know? I, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, just thinking about, you know, you going through, you know, cancer treatment and all that and going back to kind of failure and artists and everything like other creatives like really inspire me because, you know, uh, not only my writing, but I do, you know, obviously I do the podcast, I do a YouTube mm -hmm. channel, all this content creator. And there's like mm -hmm. setbacks of what we perceive as failure, but also in life. And I'm sure you had days during your treatment or even recovery where it's like you felt like you didn't do what you were supposed to do. But I, I, I often think about, you know, how much I doubted my own uh, human resilience, right? Like at the start of the pandemic, uh, you know, um, like a lot of people, I was doing, you know, a lot more mental health and motivational type stuff. And I was just reminding people, like, I'm a psychology nerd and I learned about hedonic adaptation, right? And how we just get back to our base level that becomes this new normal. So do you, do you think uh, uh, some people, or I don't know if you encounter this, you know, with the classes you do and stuff, where people kind of underestimate that, that kind of human resilience uh, that, that we have, like, I'm like, we get through some stuff. And like you're saying, like, it, it makes us stronger. It makes us different. It makes us better. You know, it definitely does. And you know what? It, it resets the bar for you. I mean, mm. I wish a cancer journey on anybody, but it's given me perspective on everything. Once you've been through something, I say, go back to it again and again, and draw on the strength that you can get from that. I mean, you know, the, the battle to go sober, that tests your soul. It tests your body and your soul. And if you can do that, there's so much you can do. And you know what? Some days, yes, we have setbacks. I don't even call them failures. Some days I just can't motivate. But then I put it in perspective and say, you know what? This is what you did today. And I try to draw on that and get the people. I mean, look, I work with some people, life and death. They, they're involved in what they call mission critical. And when I first started working with people, I said, what does mission critical mean? They said, well, failure is not an option because if failure happens, you know, there's mm. catastrophic loss of life. And I thought, well, I don't face catastrophic loss of life, but I don't really have the option to fail in too many situations. Yeah. I treat everything as mission critical. You know, everything that I have to do and my clients have to make tough decisions. A lot of them have to make life and death decisions. And I want to say to them, you have this in you. I just want to help you be able to do it more effectively. And everyone has enough on their plate. I'm not going to give you these five letters to memorize. I want this to bake into your brain so that when you are called upon and you are in a tough situation, take a deep breath, you know what to do and you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I have a, I have a question for you. It just, just came up. Because sure. one, of, one of the parts I love is like when you talk about cleaning your lenses and we're talking about uh, shifting perspectives and recognizing biases and all this, but before we dive into that, uh, you know, because this is part of it, but I'm curious your experience, uh, you know, as a mother, as somebody working with like law enforcement, people doing mission critical stuff, uh, there's, there's often a conversation, right. Uh, around like, uh, gen, maybe gen Z or even like younger millennials, like I'm 36, but millennials, such a huge thing, but there's, there's been this talk around like 
uh, fragility, safetyism, you know, censoring speech and all these other things. And like, I am extremely empathetic. I've worked in mental health uh, and addiction treatment for years and I get it. I've worked with a lot of people who have been, uh, you know, gone through really traumatic experience, different forms of abuse from childhood and all that. And maybe that's why I don't see so many words as being harmful because I'm like, I've been dealing with people who've gone through some real stuff. But anyways, I'm curious your thoughts or like, you know, even like I said, as a mom, like, have you noticed this and people not really understanding like these things will make you stronger or like even when we're problem solving like not everything is supposed to be easy or comfortable and you know the challenging things are supposed to be the things we look at and we're like okay let's do this this is gonna make me you know this is gonna make me better you know what i mean so uh have, have you noticed this have you seen a shift what's going on it's it's a great question and you know one of my one of my foundational premises in my class is I work across aisles. You know, I work across political aisles. I work mm. to economic circumstances. One of the things that I try to do, it's not about me teaching people. It's me meeting people where they are. Yeah. Meet people where they are. They're more likely to listen to you and you're showing them that you're there to listen to them. It's not just me going out and teaching you. I want to meet you where you are. That being said, these issues of safety and triggers and people not wanting to talk about certain things because they want to be in safe spaces. I have news. The world is not a safe place. The world is, how did we start our conversation today talking about how messy life is? Yeah. <laughs> and you know something, if you, you can be aware of someone's sensitivities, but life does not allow us to walk on eggshells. It just doesn't. And the example I'll give you, the art example I'll give you is in 2014, the artist Tony Mattelli put his work up at Wellesley College mm -hmm. and had his art in the museum. But there was also a sculpture on campus of a naked white guy. Well, he wasn't naked. He was wearing little Hanes underwear and he was walking in his sleep. He was sleepwalking. And it was just a sculpture of this white guy sleepwalking in his underwear. Well, Wellesley College is an all-female campus. Mm -hmm. Within 24 hours of the sculpture going up, people were screaming, take it down, take it down. It looks predatory. It's scaring me. It reminds me of sexual assault. It was a sculpture of a naked white guy in his underwear. Now, I am not a victim of sexual assault. I can't say that that sculpture would trigger me to be afraid. It's a sculpture. I can't tell anybody else how to feel. So they had a town hall meeting, the president of the college, the head of the museum, and they decided to leave the sculpture up because to take it down is censorship. You can't take something down just because you don't like it. If it's physically threatening, that's one thing, but it was an inanimate object. So the mm. reason I tell you that story is because two years after it came down in Wellesley College, they put it up on the High Line here in New York, which is a big public park. It was the most photographed thing as a selfie. Everybody wants a picture with the naked. <laughs> so my point is you move it from a campus to a public park in New York City, and the context changes. A, we always have to be aware of context and be sensitive to context. But B, I am not about wrapping us in cocoons. I am all about meeting people where they are, listening to them, hearing them out. But the world isn't going to do that for you. And yeah. so when people demand safe spaces or, you know, when I was in college, I, I, I know this happens in college now. Students will walk out if there's a tough subject being talked about. Yeah option of walking out of a class that's disrespectful mm -hmm. you engage in conversation if somebody physically threatens you that's one thing but talking about something if it's upsetting i'm sorry there's a whole big hard world out there yeah yeah and and uh to uh <laughs> to reference like uh, a story from uh my world of uh recovery uh when i first uh got sober and you know going through the 12 steps and all that there's there was this one part of the Alcoholics Anonymous book that my sponsor had me read just mm -hmm. pretty much daily. Sometimes I was reading it multiple times a day for the step I was working on. Anyways, it, it, it makes this analogy about how we're all this director who feels like we're running the whole show and everybody else is just a player. And if they just did what we wanted them to do, don't they understand how fine everything would be? And that got drilled into my head. And I got sober at 27 years old. And I, I you know, after reading that daily, basically what it was telling me was like, I'm living my life on a daily basis, thinking that everybody on planet Earth, we're, we're over 7 billion now, that every one of those 7 billion people needs to do exactly what I think they're supposed to be doing at all times. And I think about how unrealistic that expectation is. I'm like, okay, well, maybe I need to learn how to change how I'm <laughs> operating. But then like, as we're talking about this too, like my son just turned 13 years old. 
And I can't imagine teaching him like, hey, if, if you complain enough or you speak out enough, this world will eventually be exactly what you need it to be. I can't imagine like instilling that into him because uh, before we started, you and I were talking about uh, being flexible and adapting and everything. And it's like, hey, people are going to say things like, for example, a great example is I'm half black and I, I don't look at, I run into a lot of people who like say some racist things, not I realize I'm half black, right? But like, it shouldn't I, matter that you're half black. They shouldn't be saying racist things anyway. But the yeah. fact that they do gives you this view into that world. And that is horrific. Horrific. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's, they're saying, you know, things about, you know, half my family and, you know, and all, all those other things. But I have to adapt and work with it. I understand that, you know, people, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, that kind of empathy. And I try to perspective take, uh, you know, some people come from different backgrounds where that's okay or these households. And, you know, and uh, if I if I feel it necessary, if I feel like I can even do anything, I might have a conversation with them or whatever it is. But I don't set the expectation as this will never happen. And if I work hard enough, this will never happen again. Um, but, you know, uh, going to uh, the, the cleaning your lenses, can you kind of ex explain that? Because a lot of this and problem solving is changing perspective, looking at things from all angles and just it's it's probably my favorite part of the book because that was life changing for me when I was able to just start changing my perspective and then it, you know, went into all my problem solving that I have to do on a daily basis. That's great. Well, A, I'm glad to hear that it resonated with you and that you were able to use this. But I think that cleaning the lenses, I, I try to do it every day. You know, I nobody is me, as my son always says, thank goodness. Nobody uh -huh. else. Um, and nobody, we have to remember how unique our human eyes are attached to our human brain. You know, phones, AI, it's all wonderful, but there's nothing as powerful as human eyes attached to a human brain. But what comes along with that are biases and assumptions because we see things a certain way. And we constantly have to remind ourselves that nobody sees things the way we do. And cleaning your lenses not only means saying there's always, as I said to my, my son when he would come home from school and he'd be upset about something, and I'd say to him, there's always another side to a story. Always. It's not just the way you see it. There's always something else going on. And I'll give you an example that I'm trying to work through now because as part of the publicity for my book, I'm trying to think about problems that we're facing, not just easy problems, but what are some really hard problems that we have to solve? And one of the things I watch the news all the time, I don't know if that's such a good thing. I watch the news. I listen no, to me too. So uh, <laughs> in the same boat. <laughs> sometimes I can't sleep at night because I'm thinking about these problems that we're having. And this doesn't affect everybody, but it's a problem that's going to keep coming up. At the University of Pennsylvania, there's a transgender woman who's swimming mm. Swim team and she's breaking all the records and she's finished transitioning. She's not taking hormones, but women athletes are complaining, you're breaking our records and it's not fair for us to compete against a transgender woman who identifies a, as a woman. So my first thought was, okay, how do you solve this? Yeah. First thing I had to do was clean my lenses. And what clean my lenses involves is understanding the viewpoint from the athletes, the athletes who participate in the sport, the people that make the rules and organizations that uh, take policy positions. And so it's been so interesting for me to reach out to all those people because look, transge transgender athlete competition, athletic competitions, it's only gonna come up more and more and more. Nobody's gonna listen to Amy Herman, but what I wanna do is put a template in place for us to think about intractable situations where the solution is not in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. And we do not live in a black and white world. We do not. And yeah. I that all the time. Everything we do is in shades of gray. And as much as you want to live in a black and white world, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And steps you can take to, to clean your lenses and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to physically take my glasses off. I'm going to think about what I see, but I'm going to stand in somebody else's shoes and see how this looks from their position with the swimming. How does the transgender woman feel? How do the other women on her team feel? How do the, how does the competing team feel? Mm -hmm. and, and so it's just, a matter of taking in as many perspectives and going back to what I said before, you don't have to change your mind. You have to meet people where they are. You have to see where they are and see where they're coming from. Otherwise, nobody will solve any problems. And you say, you know what? I'm right. You're wrong. I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that goes nowhere. Amy, I love it. You're one of my new favorite people. Like, oh, I <laughs> like, absolutely. I think that's such a great example because it's such a polarizing topic. And, you know, I've been asking questions and, you know, something I try to pound into the heads of my uh, lovely podcast listeners, the people who read my writing and stuff is, 
I always, I always talk about it. It seems like I'm like signaling, like, look how cool I am. But I always talk about how I force myself to read books, like an entire book, like 300 plus pages from someone that I feel I disagree with. Right. That's I, so great. Like, I force so myself great. to <laughs> and, But really it's, it's for that perspective, right? You, you see this thing, like, um, you know, I, I did it. I've done it a lot in the last month or two. And, you know, I feel anger. I feel like, is this guy an idiot? You know, whatever it is. Right. But you start to learn about their history, their background. You start to see where they stand on other topics. One of, uh, one of the books that changed my life was The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, where he breaks down uh, the moral foundations of different political ideologies and stuff. And I started to think about that more, but it forced me to take perspective. So when we're talking about such a, uh, a, a heated topic, like what's going on with sports and trans issues and all that, like, it, like you said, it's important to jump into every, like just off the top of my head, you have the women, right? Like I, uh, you know, I've had mainly female friends my whole life. My mm -hmm. girlfriend, she's a woman, uh, you know, and all these other things. And a lot of them are feminists, right? So I see and I hear and I, I, I read books by feminists. I know what they fought for, right? Sure. But then I also read books about, uh, you know, trans rights and what they go through. I'm a huge mental health advocate. I've had yeah. clients who uh, have become, uh, you know, they, they start self-medicating because of the way the world treats trans people, right? So I hop right. into their perspective, right? And they just want to live their lives. They just want to do what they want to do. They want to play and be sports, who they are. Right? They just want to be who they are. And then you have the schools who have people like, you know, uh, just storming them if they make the wrong decisions from both sides. And I'm like, so I try to take all these things into consideration, but I guess what I want to ask you, right? And not just this topic, but all topics, because what I've noticed and I try to ask questions, right? I, I ask a lot of questions. I want to see what I'm missing. But you often see kind of what we touched on uh, in, you know, this kind of black and white. No, I have the answer. Conversation's over, you know? And I just, I, I don't know if you've run into this kind of stubbornness uh, in your classes with people you work with, uh, where they, they think the answer is there. The, the conversation's over. Here's what it is. Because you start seeing name calling and uh, calling, calling people phobic or uh, uh, racist or, you know, whatever it is, sexist. And it's like, hey, can we just talk through the problem? Like, there's clearly a problem. Let's talk through it. Yes. It has come up quite a bit. And I found myself, I never thought I was going to be a specialist in de-escalation, but I've had to do uh. that. And there are two things, two, two pieces of wisdom that I've learned that I'm so happy to pass forward. Number one, let's do away with the knee-jerk reaction. Okay. Mm. And, and if we find ourselves engaging in the knee-jerk reaction, let's call it out for what it is and say, you know what? I jumped to a conclusion. I, I am acting knee-jerk. I need to walk it back. Okay. I'm not saying I'm not going to get to the same answer, but I'm speaking off the top of my head right now. Number two is we need, one thing my mentor, one of my mentors says is we have one mouth and two ears for a reason <laughs> proportionally. Okay. We should be listening twice as much as we're talking because there's an author, Stephen Covey, and he says the majority of us listen to respond instead of listen to understand. And mm. that's so true in the world of texting and instantaneous answers and Instagram, let's get it out there. We need to listen more and talk less. And you know what? The bottom line is you'll appear smarter because then you're tailoring your responses. You're actually listening to what someone says. And the, and the third thing, and this came up in one of my classes is and I'll tell you what the example was using art. Say what you see before saying what you think. They're not the same thing. They are not the same thing. Case in point, I was at a law enforcement conference and I put up a painting of a man playing the cello from the 19th century. Bearded man playing a cello, sitting in a chair. Not, nothing ambiguous about the painting. Yeah. So I said to the group, who's going to tell me what they see? And a woman raised her hand. And I had a lot of answers in my head that I expected to hear. No, she says, that man in your picture, he's Jewish. I'm like, well, that's not one of the answers I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. What got you to the conclusion that he's Jewish? What did you see? She said, well, you know, in World War II, the Nazis put Jews in concentration camps. I said, yeah, they did. She said, and sometimes they made chamber music groups. I said, yes, they did. She said, so the, when, when the Red Cross came through, they could see that everything was okay. And I'm like, stop right now. Who's talking about Nazis? Where'd you come up with chamber music? Where's the Red Cross? There's a guy sitting in a chair playing a cello. What are you talking about? And she got really mad at me. And this is what she said. She said, well, you asked me what I thought of when I looked at your picture. And I said, I didn't. With all due respect, I said, what do you see? Not what do you think? Mm. 
And we need to remind each other, let's state what the problem is. Let's state what the situation is. It's, it's almost a precursor to cleaning your lenses. Let's all go around the table and state what we, per, what we perceive the problem to be. And then let's go from there. Say what you see before saying what you think. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. It, it reminds me, I was listening to uh, some kind of like panel discussion or something like that. And there was a Q&A session and people were asking like, do you, they asked them uh, because it was kind of like, you know, science, like science making decisions about it. It might even have been about a trans conversation. But anyway, somebody asked, do you think activists should be involved in this conversation? Because you, uh, you know, right, like you get science, whether it's COVID, trans issues or, or anything, whether it's, uh, you know, gender-based issues like men, women, or uh, so many conversations. And I was thinking about it and I'm like, yeah, you need activists there because scientists are thinking from the view of a scientist, right? Like I, I almost, uh, because I, you know, I'm an advocate for addiction and mental health and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my drug of choice was prescription painkillers. Right. Mm -hmm. So hell yeah. Like, I think if you, <laughs> if you want to make regulations or have conversations, you need to get somebody in there Absolutely. who was, who was addicted. Right. And uh, it's understand it, what addiction really is, not just the physiological side of it, but what, knowing what the drug will, will do. Yeah. And. You know, uh, it, it comes, uh, something to talk about in the book is, is the bubbles we get into, right? And yes. I think this kind of uh, bleeds into this shutting down conversations because, uh, again, the reason why I read books from people I feel like I disagree with, because if I, sometimes I see people's bookshelves, right? I can't see what's on your bookshelf, but I, I look at people's bookshelves a lot and I look at it and it's all within the same like perspective. And I'm like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> I'm like, like you're, you're making their mind narrower, yeah. narrower, right? But that's where people have a comfort zone, you see. Like, they what can do you... surround themselves with people that think like them. That's going to make them comfortable. What do you teach people about getting out of that bubble, getting diverse points of views and perspectives? Because to, to shift the conversation for anybody listening, like, like organizations, right? Because you can have a lot of people in an organization. Every you have yes men. I'm a huge fan of like the Ash conformity studies, right? Where nobody speaks out and and right. just the insanity that can happen. So, uh, whether it's organizations or these social issues or political issues, how do you teach people to diversify the the information and opinions coming in so they don't get trapped in that bubble? Because we love accusing other people of being in a bubble. Yes, we do. I see it on a daily basis. So, how do we become more self aware and make sure that we don't get trapped in one? I'm very fortunate because I, I work in the world of art and the art almost does it for me. So <laughs> I'm using art as the data and I'm bringing in people who have very strong opinions about a lot of things. But not only when we talk about a work of art, do they see how other people see it? I, we talk about what they see and I show them what they're missing. I say, you know, you talked about the three figures here, but what about the five figures in the back? And they're like, <gasps> how did I miss that? And I said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with missing those figures in the painting here. But what happens when you're on the job and you're totally missing something and you are unaware and they come out and they feel like somebody has just lifted a shroud off their heads and all I had to do was guide them. I didn't have to say, no, you missed it. They see for themselves. And so the, the beautiful thing about using art that I have found in the 20 years I've been doing this is that I'm assuming we're all starting at ground zero together. Nobody that I work with is an expert in mm. art. And I'm just bringing in a whole new set of data. Nobody's an expert. Nothing threatening here, no right and wrong answers. Let's just talk about what we see. And people go, literally, they go from this to this. And they walk out of there thinking, A, not only what I say matters, what I have to say matters, but what other people has to say have to say also matters. And I need to be a better listener. And nobody comes out of my session thinking, well, that was dumb. I just looked at art for three hours. What am I going to take with them? It's not about looking at the art. It's thinking about how do you ask questions? How do you see? How do you think about what you see? And how do you communicate what you see? And I'm really excited that I'm also um, writing a young adult book, ages nine to 13, based on my first book to, te to teach young adults early to think about how they see and how they talk about what they see and how they think about what they see. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because that we're talking about polarization, all the anger and fighting going on, like, I, I'm always baffled at how people just suck at communicating, right? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, they're yeah. terrible. They're terrible. And you know. I don't want to be the one to tell them when they come out of my class, they think I really suck at this and they realize it themselves and I never have to tell them. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm fortunate that I have very, you know, 
thick skin and stuff. But you know, uh, like I was, I was uh, considering getting like uh, my therapy license. My girlfriend's currently in a master's program for social work. So, but there's a lot of techniques therapists use, right? Because if you misinterpret yeah. what you know your clients saying, there's a lot of issues that you have to learn how to talk and understand and listen. Like, so that's why I love you know therapists. Therapists are great to talk to just as friends because they'll listen. They have all the tools. But then I look at I look at the world because that's my world, the mental health world. I'm like, man, you are so like aggressive. And like, I'm like, so is it any wonder why people get, you know, defensive when you're talking to them so aggressively and stuff like that? So communication is definitely something. And I don't think digital communication is helping much. Because that leaves a look. It's <laughs> not helping because there's no tone in a text. Like you can't see somebody's body language. You can't see their face. You know, the example that you just gave, if somebody made a racist remark about Black people, but they can't see your face, like there would be shock on your face or, or look like, Maybe you don't want to say that in front of me, but in texting and digital communication, there's none of that nuance. There's none of that body language. And, and the way we live in a messy world, we live in a real world with people and we need to have those interpersonal skills. Remember when we were kids, we'd have to answer the phone and say, no, my mother can't come to the phone or my father can't come to the phone. Can I take a message? Nobody does that anymore. Like there are no, learn those interpersonal skills and they are so, so important. It's a real messy, hot, steaming world and we need to do well in it. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting when I set up uh, it, I set up these interviews, like I just started this podcast last May. I have over a hundred episodes because I'm just That's crazy amazing. Person, right. But when I'm talking with people and setting them up, you know, a lot of people they're like, Oh, is it video too or just audio or whatever? And I always tell them, I'm like, I prefer video just so I can see. Right. Me too. Me too. <laughs> just I because it makes you feel like you're talking to a whole person, not just as we say in my in my business, you're not just talking to the voice of God, you know, this voice coming down. When you can see, you realize we're talking to whole people. And one of the things that I teach in this book and in my class is no matter what your profession, the person you're dealing with has a whole life. They have a mother-in-law who's dying. They have a dog that's throwing up. They have a marriage that's on the rocks. They have to go grocery shopping. And it's not just about the problem that you're working out. They have whole lives. And that's part of cleaning your lenses too, is recognizing that about everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I got a little bit more of your time. I want to, I want to ask you and have you kind of explain one of my favorite stories from your book. So uh, I'll have you explain it better than I, but there's a guy <laughs> who, uh, who you talked about where he talks about what if, what if Hitler was admitted into art school? Right. And I love that story and I'll have you kind of break it down without giving too much away. So everybody goes by the book. But anyways, what the, the takeaway I get from this story is like, I'm always thinking about some of the most difficult topics. Right. And a lot of us are afraid to even present the conversation or ask the question, right? Like, for example, what if Hitler got into art school? And like, right. I can already imagine, like if I just type, if I just type that on Twitter right now, I could only imagine what would happen in my life. But anyways, stories like this give me courage to ask difficult questions because there are silent people. But again, with, with your world of problem solving, we're talking mm -hmm. about the stuff like it's impossible to solve, like going back to the, the trans sports uh, debate, right. it's impossible to solve difficult problems if we refuse to talk about them, that you know? So anyways, anyways, can you can you kind of give an overview uh, of that story, of what it was about and all that kind of stuff? I'm going to speak in full transparency and full pride. It was my son's college essay. Really? Yes. And I didn't want to serve him up on a platter in book, so I didn't mention. I love it. <laughs> funded this. But the question was, the college question, because it's been a thousand years since I applied to college, the college essay question was, if you could change one event in the 20th century, what would it be? And, you know, there's some, there's so many events. People would say, well, I would undo Vietnam, or I wouldn't have this person as president, or people would even go as far to say, you know, I wish we could erase the Holocaust because it was such an awful um, obliteration on the 20th century. But I said to my son, think about the essay. What's going to make your essay stand out? It's the event you choose and how you choose to write about it. And he did his research and his approach was, what if Hitler had gotten into art school? He researched Adolf Hitler and it turns out that Adolf Hitler was a failed artist. He made two attempts to get into art school and he was rejected in Vienna. He was rejected over and over again. And it's festered in him. And he developed this self-loathing and this loathing and this hatred and went on to commit the atrocities that he did. And in my son's essay, he said, what if Hitler 
had been accepted to art school and had not festered and had this sense of self-loathing and insecurity and actually became an artist. He didn't have to be a great artist, but perhaps that would have changed one of the worst events of the 20th century. No guarantee, but just shifting the perspective, which is all I ask people to do in my program. Look at the issue from a different angle. So he didn't talk about what Hitler did in World War II. He said, let's go in and think about why Hitler might have done what he did. And if we could change just one thing, he said he would have admitted Hitler to arts. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I love it. And like, what a, <laughs> what a brave thing to do, right? Because he got into the college he wrote it for. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's that's great too because we have to do that, uh, and we have to like take risks and go outside the box. And you know, a lot of it, like, I, I've noticed a lot of people are afraid to take risks. I kind of you know wrote a whole a, a whole piece about how you know pretty soon if if you stop acting human you're going to get replaced by machines because people are afraid to take these risks like i've been we we just dealt with an insane situation like when you and i were rescheduling this podcast like between then and now uh, we had a rat infestation we had to get stay at a hotel we had to find a new place all these things and i've had to like deal with like you know uh refurnishing the house and all sorts of stuff anyways uh we've dealt with terrible customer service where people are uh working from a script and i just think about how these people must be afraid to take risks, right? They must be afraid because they won't go talk to a supervisor. They don't empathize. They don't say this person's going through this. But anyways, anyways, uh, going back to this topic, um, something I think about, which kind of lines up with this, is every time there's a mass shooting in the United States, right? Because I'm, I'm the type of person where I'm always trying to get down to the root of the problem. Right. So why did Hitler like what what happened to Hitler? Why did he do that? What, what what happened to him? And when I look at these mass shootings, I'm like, why, 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 why? And I swear from everyone I've looked at over you know the last five years, I look at it and there's always a story about just tremendous bullying. Right. Just tremendous bullying. But with situations like this, when somebody c- commits something awful and we try to look at why they did it. Mm-hmm. I've noticed too that that conversation gets shut down. Like, oh, are you justifying it? Are you you're victim not. blaming? You know what I mean? And- you know what you're doing? You're cleaning your lenses. You're saying, you know what? This is a terrible act. This is this was atrocious. It's unjustifiable. But in the interest of trying to prevent this from happening again, let's look behind the incident. Let's see what happened. And, you know, I'm going to give you a good example that I've been using in my presentations. I don't know if you saw in the news in October of this year, they were kind of short on news. So it was all over the television. There was an elk running around in Colorado with a tire around its neck. I did not hear about that, but I'm going to look it up. You do because the pictures are unbelievable. So this full grown elk, a wild elk was running around with a tire around its neck. And the wildlife officials were like, okay, we need to get the tire off the elk's neck because one of two things is going to happen. The, the tire is going to dig into the elk's neck and it's going to die. Or another elk is going to see that as a sign of aggression and kill the elk. So this was a big, big elk and they couldn't taser it. They couldn't track it down. Finally, they did. They tasered the damn thing. It fell and they couldn't saw the tire off because it had a steel band in it. Uh. So, no, now, I don't know how much you know about elks. I don't know a lot, but I learned that when you taser a big elk, you have a very short window to get the tire off. The elk is going to wake up. So what did they do? Had to solve the problem. That's where I tie it back to my work. They had to solve the problem. What did they do? They, they, so they took off the antlers because the antlers were preventing them from getting the tire off. They sawed off the antlers. They took the tire off. The elk woke up and it ran away. What's the point here? The point is, what is the underlying problem? The underlying problem is that a baby elk came in contact with human pollution, okay, and detritus and got this stupid tire, tire around its neck and then it grew antlers and the tire couldn't come off. Sometimes you need to get the damn tire off your neck and you can't solve the underlying problem. In our lifetime, are we going to solve the problem of wildlife and human pollution? No. And there are some problems. Just put a Band-Aid on it and make it better because you can't solve it. So case of bullying, we're never going to make bullying go away. Never. I mean, that's just, there was bullying when I was in elementary school. There was when you were there. But in really terrible cases, when we start to see signs of bullying, if we can intervene, where we think things are really going to go wrong very quickly, talk about it, don't be afraid. And say, you know what? I don't want to close alarms or I don't want to do that knee-jerk thing, but I'm scared for this kid and what this kid might do. Get the tire off the neck. You can't solve, you know, if the kid's from a troubled home, you're not going to fix the home. Work with the kid. 
give, use the information you have. And, you know, I look at these wildlife officials, they were so excited. They sawed off the antlers. Yes, antlers grow back. Do I know that the elk isn't going to get a tenant another tire? No, but you've solved the problem for right now. Sometimes you just need to solve the problem at hand and can't worry about the big issues. And so bullying and mass shooting, you know, in the, going back to the Dallas hostage situation, you know that in synagogues around the country now, because this is happening, they've installed a little button on the pulpit. Mm. Rabbi or Cantor is on the pulpit and a terrorist or a, uh, a gunman comes in. All they have to do is press the button and 911 is automatically called and nobody knows it. That is addressing the problem. You're not going to stop people from these terrorist incidents, but you can get them if you install a panic button. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and this all kind of ties together, like going back to uh, breaking things down into uh, smaller, more manageable pieces, like, well, with bullying, you know, like with my son, uh, when he was in elementary school, you know, like I, I, you know, I'm a defensive parent. You hear about that stuff and like the mama bear or papa bear. You want to kill somebody. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to beat up, I'm going to beat up a child or something. Right. But I realized like, I'm not going to stop bullying. My son is going to deal with this. He was in elementary school. Now he's in middle school. It's going to keep happening. So what I did, I, I knew I couldn't stop bullying as a whole, but I could teach my son how to adapt and work with it. And one of them was I taught him about changing perspectives. Right. So when it started happening, I said, I was like, what if that kid has a terrible home life, right? I'm like, think about all your toys. You have a great family. Your mom's here for you. I'm here for you. You have your grandparents. All of us, you you get everything you want. Like, just try to imagine that that kid is getting yelled at. He doesn't have anything. And this is his outlet, right? So I can work with my son. So now, ever since then, he's been more empathetic to bullies. Sometimes, you know, he'll try to befriend them. Other times he sticks up for other people who are getting bullied and talks with them and spreads the word. Like, all I can do, like, at the end of the day, when I feel overwhelmed, I'm like, the, the most I could do, like, if I look at, like, crazy adults, I'm like, the most I could do is look at my son and be like, how do I help you not turn into someone terrible? Right? <laughs> Sometimes that's my, my number one accomplishment of the day. It's like, maybe my son won't be an awful person when he's older, you know? You know, I have to throw this in here and for, uh, forgive my use of profanity, but you know what the rule since my son has been in elementary school is what's rule number one in our house? Don't be an ass. Yeah. Don't we say that? And it goes hand in hand with be kind in the situation where you have to make a decision how to act and how to be responsible. Don't be a jerk and be kind. And when you resort, when you default to your humanity in those situations, nine out of 10 times, you'll do the right thing and you'll do the justifiable thing. If you don't be a jerk and try to be kind, because you know what, we're missing so much kindness in the world. And I know that sounds so Pollyanna, but I live in New York City and I see jerks all the time, but I see so many more kind people than I do jerks. And it is heartening to be one of them. And sometimes I have to hold myself back. Like when someone cuts on the line to get a COVID test and just walks to the front of the line and I tap him on the shoulder and I say, you know, there are 80 people waiting. And he said, well, I need a test. I said, so do these 80 people back of the line, sir. Yeah. (laughs) I, I don't, I won't get walked on. But I try to go out of my way to um, solve problems when I can with kindness. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and and sometimes something like that is an act of kindness. It's an act of kindness for the 80 people. People were looking <laughs> like, people were looking like, is this guy really doing this? But I said, no one's saying anything. So I said to him, sir, excuse me, there's a whole line. I said, these New Yorkers are not going to let him get away with that. There's no way they're going to let him get away with that. So yeah. the problems come up, that's the kind of problem that I that I'm talking about those little problems. How can we solve them? The problems every day or the long-term intractable problems. And I just want to give people an interesting and creative and hopefully effective way to solve the problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to wrap up because that's what I love about your book is because one of my favorite types of books to read is just how to think differently, how to problem solve better. And you brought in this whole new perspective for me to take a look from and it's like art and I'm thinking about the process because we didn't even touch we didn't even touch on so much that you dive into I'm so glad I read your book so uh correct me if I'm wrong but I believe it's out everywhere can you let everybody know where is fixed how do we find it how do they get their hands on it uh it's called fixed perfect the fine art of problem solving it is at your favorite independent bookstore it's at Amazon and uh, my website is artfulperception.com. The other website where you can buy the book is artfulbooks.com, A-R-T-F-U-L. And there's information on my two books and my young adult book that's coming out in September. And uh, I'm on social media at Amy Herman at P. 
Beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask you too, like, uh, say, Hey, I, I have a lot of business folks who listen to the podcast. Uh, they want to get a hold of you. They're like, Hey, Amy, we need some help solving problems. Is that on your website? Everything like that? It is. How to get in touch with me is on my website and everything to do with the book and the people I work with. That's the best way to reach me is artfulperception.com. Awesome. I will link all that down in the description. Very last question for you. When's the next book coming out? So I can keep an eye out for it. <laughs> I always say writing a book is like having a baby. I'm still, uh, I'm still going through contractions here, but the next book, young adult book will be out in September and that's for ages nine to 13. And it's an adaptation of my first book, visual intelligence. And, uh, I have to think a while before I get pregnant again. But what I say about writing a book is, uh, I won't write a book until I have something to say. And I was excited to get this book out there and help. Hopefully it will help people solve their problems. Beautiful. I love it. Amy, this was such a pleasure having you on and I, I, I look forward to your future work and everything. So thank you. It was a joy to meet you. It was really so much fun talking to you and best of luck with all your work. Absolutely. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Amy. Like I said, I love this like different way of looking at things to become better decision makers. And, you know, we all, we all love to think that we make like amazing decisions. And if you listen to my last episode with uh, Steve Fleming, we, all of us, all of us, me, you, everybody, we suck at self-awareness. All right. We're great at self-deception, suck at (laughs) self-awareness. So it's something that we regularly need to be working on. So this book from Amy Herman is absolutely phenomenal. So make sure that you follow her and, uh, yeah, grab a copy of her book. All that stuff's linked down in the description below. I promise you that you will love it. It's not getting nearly enough attention. So make sure you grab a copy, check it out. All right. But yeah, before I let you go, uh, a couple of things, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. Um, and yeah, two real easy ways to support the podcast that don't cost you a penny. Um, Make sure you share these episodes. If you thought Amy and I touched on some good topics, you think other people enjoy it, share it. Share it on social media, share it in email, uh, you know, just tell people about it, scream it from the rooftops, whatever your thing is. All right. That helps out a ton. And then, yeah, again, make sure you leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that helps out a ton too. The algorithms love when you leave ratings and reviews and you share the stuff they can tell. They're like, oh, other people might enjoy, uh, enjoy this. So then we build this beautiful little community that we got going on. All right. But yeah, a couple other ways that you can support the podcast uh, down in the description, you can become a paid Substack subscriber. Some of you are listening to this episode a day early and yeah, that's why. So it's $5 a month or 50 bucks for the year. Help support what I'm doing and you get early episodes. Uh, You can also grab a, a copy of one of the books that I've written on mental health, addiction, recovery, my experience getting canceled. All that's available at therewiredsoul.com. And lastly, lastly, uh, for somebody like me who, uh, you know, cares about your mental health, wants to improve your mental health, there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. And yeah, therapy isn't just for when you're like losing your mind or you have like the weight of the world on your shoulders, right? Like therapy is great for everybody at any time. Just, just you know, dealing with life on life's terms, as we say in my beautiful recovery community. And BetterHelp is a service that I've personally used. So it's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist. So if you're interested, check out that affiliate link down below. All right. But another huge, huge thanks to Amy for taking the time to come on, follow her, grab a copy of her new book fixed. And yeah, I should have one more episode for you this week. So make sure that you're staying tuned. But other than that, have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time. 